The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. And today I'm excited to have back by popular demand, Leslie Pratch, and we'll be discussing coping style and the implications for choosing leaders. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Leslie. As a clinical psychologist with an MBA from the University of Chicago, Leslie brings a unique combination of skills and experience to assessing executives. And while she was in graduate school for psychology, she led research into a psychological model for predicting leadership. And this work became the basis of her PhD dissertation at Northwestern and more. To better understand the business world, she went on to earn an MBA at the University of Chicago, focusing on two areas about which she had next to nothing in knowledge, strategy and finance. She's continued to conduct research and publish in the area of personality and leadership since 1998. She's been earning her living as a psychologist, advising private equity investors, boards of directors, and senior executives of both publicly and privately held companies. In this capacity, she's conducted in-depth assessments of over 400 existing and potential CEOs or other top management. So you can see why I wanted to have Leslie back on my show. She brings together leadership and predictive modeling. So Leslie, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. On my April 18th show a little over a month ago, Leslie spoke about her model for predicting leadership among already highly accomplished executives. She argued that it is possible to predict with a high degree of accuracy how individuals will cope when faced with unexpected challenges and complexity. And central to her predictive model is a structural psychological construct she calls active coping. She conceptualizes active coping not as a situation-specific behavior or trait in a narrow sense of the term, but more of a style of functioning. Her formal definition of active coping is an individual's resilience, willingness, and ability to adapt resourcefully and effectively to novel and changing conditions. And this is something we are seeing all the time. And this active coping may not be revealed in someone's overt behavior. So, Leslie, can you remind my audience, what are the four elements of the active coping style that are crucial to effective leadership? 
Okay. Um, so the four elements of the active coping style that are crucial to effective leadership are psychological autonomy, integrated capacity, catalytic coping, and integrity. Thank you. And so what I'm planning is to have you as a guest um, in a month or so, and we will pursue those in more detail and get lots of great examples. But right now, can you explain what you mean by structural psychological approach and how it helps you to predict leadership? Yeah, those are good questions, Olivia. Um, And it's important to understand the framework. A structural psychological approach views personality as a complex structure, which has characteristic and relatively stable dimensions that interact and respond changing internal and external circumstances. This view assumes an internal organization of psychological processes that can't be directly observed, but which underlie the cohesiveness and directedness of personality at a single time and over longer periods of development. A structural view also assumes that people have the capacity to develop new functional parts and new ways of organizing those parts. The term structural refers to the relations among different levels or functions of personality. So a structural model offers a developmental framework into which different facets of personality can be integrated and understood in relation to each other. Interesting. My work, yeah, so how does the structural model relate to predicting leadership? I've proposed that effective business leaders possess personality structures that are capable of actively responding to static and changing circumstances in adaptively resourceful ways. These personality structures don't invent one or even a limited set of behaviors or traits. Instead, they're complex in organization and can alter and, if need be, develop new behaviors or traits to accommodate, master, or transcend the constellations and stressors that surround them. Hmm. Leadership in rapidly changing conditions requires a personality structure that's both relatively stable and open to change. Stability, at least in part, refers to the ability to withstand external pressure long enough to assess the situation and consider appropriate action. The openness to change assumes the ability to adopt new behaviors or strategies when old ones are no longer viable. So then the question becomes, how do we conceptualize the structural dimensions that produce that flexible balance between stability and change? An answer lies in the theory of active coping. This theory derives from the ideas of ego and self-psychology. The ego, or the equivalent in these theories to the central organizing agency of the personality, must fulfill the following four functions. One, deal with the biological and basic drives and needs of the person, such as sexuality and aggression. Two, deal with external environmental challenges and threats. Three, deal with the individualized desires and needs of the self, those aspects of motivation that extend beyond biological gratification and physical survival. And four, coordinate the means of achieving the first three functions in a manner that creates a relatively stable identity with an adequate sense of self-esteem and accomplishment. 
let me give you some definitions. Conceptually, the conceptual definition of active coping is, is from the perspective of a structural psychological model. It's a characteristic of a healthy personality structure. Such a healthy structure is capable of tolerating the tension inherent in openly perceiving internal and external events that can be threatening, challenging, or conflict-arousing. This healthy structure also maintains the ability to formulate and carry out strategies to meet, overcome, master, or resolve the threats, challenges, and conflicts that it encounters. These strategies operate consciously and unconsciously, and they're designed to optimize an adaptive balance between external environmental demands on the one hand and the individual's psychological aspirations, needs, and morals on the other hand. Formally, active coping is defined as a readiness to, A, orient attention in a way that enables the individual to identify complexity in his or her perceptual field. That is, to identify goals and sources of conflict or danger, whether emotional, social, or cognitive. And B, articulate the field by coping affectively, cognitively, and or by action in a way that C, safeguards optimal self-esteem and adjustment to changing environmental demands. That is, by coping actively in a way that maximizes the potential for further integral psychological and physical development and well-being. Hmm. We manifest active coping in our propensity to strive to achieve personal aims and overcome difficulties rather than passively retreat or be overwhelmed by frustration. So, as a, a summary of that, Active coping is a structural characteristic of personality. As such, it relates to a relatively stable but complex psychological orientation across time and circumstances. It's not meant to predict situation-specific, consciously decided upon strategies for handling problems. Neither is it viewed as a trait in the narrow sense of the word. It's a style of functioning. Well, this makes a lot of sense because, as we know, the business landscape is just growing every day in complexity. So how does understanding their coping style help in selecting executives that would be good leaders? Sure, that's the crux of my work. Um, to take Abraham Lincoln's frustrating search for a capable Army commander during the Civil War. Lincoln had his pick of generals with illustrious West Point backgrounds and even generals who'd shown great bravery and resourcefulness as junior and senior officers in the Mexican-American War six years earlier. One of his generals was George McClellan. McClellan had a towering reputation going into the war. He was a masterful razor, organizer, and trainer of armies. His men were fiercely loyal to him, but he proved a failure leading the Union Army in battle. Only when Ulysses S. Grant became overall Army commander in 1864 did Lincoln find a man capable of rising to the occasion. Grant had been a failure in every trade he ever tried. Tanner, farmer, soldier, he resigned as a captain well before the Civil War began. But there was one thing that Grant could do better than any man of his time. He could lead an army to victory in war. He was a creative and relentless fighter and won battle after battle until he had worked his way to the top. 
So the question is, could Grant's success and McClellan's failure have been predicted? Lincoln didn't have the option of assessing his generals using clinical psychological techniques. He had to make choices knowing their overt strengths and weaknesses, not their covert, unconscious tolerance for stress. Using current methods to uncover his generals' coping styles, he might have gotten a more accurate picture of how they'd handle actual warfare. A thorough assessment would likely have caught McClellan's hesitation to act under pressure and Grant's underlying determinations pushed through against all odds. Although Grant was not an active cooper in many situations, such as leading the country during peacetime, he was the right leader for the particular situation that had nearly destroyed the Union. His particular coping style made him the right leader during wartime. Most of us are like Grant, thriving under some circumstances, faltering under others. There's no such thing as a perfect coper able to handle every problem at any time. All candidates for a leadership role will have some flaws in their coping structure. An in-depth assessment makes it possible to understand these flaws. That information is crucial for making accurate predictions about a leader's long-term success. Knowing that leaders will flourish in one situation but wilt in another allows superiors, whether they're boards of directors or presidents of the United States, to place them in positions that will play to their strengths, not their weaknesses. A large part of predicting leadership accurately is identifying the conditions under which a leader will be effective. That's fascinating because it sounds like it, it was just that one persistent unwillingness to give up that made Grant successful, even though he maybe in, uh, in so many other parts of his life was not. So I can see where it's, it, it just makes a difference in what their task is. So we've, um, can you elaborate on the act of coping as a construct emerging from a developmental model of personality? Um, earlier, I described a structural model as offering a developmental framework in which different facets of personality could be integrated and understood in relation to each other. And this developmental framework is what makes the construct of active coping so useful in predicting leadership. In, real, in the real world, leaders are required to overcome multiple complex and ongoing challenges, often in parallel rather than one at a time, and are expected to do so for many years while continually improving their competence. Short-term situation-specific approaches to assessing personality are helpful for certain types of research and applications but cannot predict behavior over longer, more meaningful periods of human development. That's why developmental models are the most relevant for selecting leaders. So how does active coping actually develop? Well, it can start to develop with the very first breath we take. As adults, we've internalized the rules and structures of our society, but to babies, those rules are entirely external. Babies don't even know that the rules exist until they are old enough to be aware of the constraints placed on them. I'm sure you know this, Olivia. Toddlers <laughs> go through the terrible twos and yeah, threes and right. fours. Yeah. Um, mm. But they're terrible because their expression of their internal drives and desires comes into constant opposition from the structure of human society. 
as children grow yeah. up, their parents, yeah. I, well, I was just going to say, I often thought that the reason the terrible twos were so terrible is because they've they've been intelligent beings, but they haven't been able to communicate. So they got two years of frustration build up, perhaps because of these rules that they couldn't express anything, you know, in response to them. That's a good insight. And and once they start expressing them, society stops starts stopping them. <laughs> exactly. So. So we just have about 30 seconds to the break. So, um, you know, maybe tell a little bit more. And then after we come back, we can maybe go into an example. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with a passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with Leslie Pratch of Pratchco.com or her company uh, website is Prochko.com. And I want to just remind my listeners that Leslie has written a book called Looks Good on Paper with a question mark at the end. And it is available on Amazon as a pre-order. It'll eventually be coming out as an ebook and uh, should be shipping, I believe, in June. So before the break, we were talking about some of the the features of active coping and and how it's useful for predicting leadership, and we were talking about some examples. 
And um, just before the break, we were talking about the terrible twos and how children don't know the rules, and so they start to react to them when they get to be able to communicate. So can you continue with that and maybe provide an example, Leslie? Sure. Earlier I talked about, you know, the, the ego and active coping as a parameter of ego functioning. And remember that the function of the ego is it has four functions, but, you know, two of them are dealing with the biological needs of the individual and external environmental challenges and demands and regulations and constraints. And I was talking about how active coping develops and it develops initially because as children grow up, their parents and authority figures impose the rules and structures of their culture upon them, repeating limitations and explaining the purpose of appropriate behavior until children accept the rules and can follow them independently. So an example is Susie's mother tells her, no, Susie, don't grab that toy. Share with your brother. Susie learns that she gets approval for sharing. She learns to identify with her brother, and she identifies with her parents in treating her brother as someone to take care of and treat empathically. But the values and ideals that she internalizes were initially experienced as limitations to the gratification of her basic desires by the external environment. When we internalize the society's rules, they become part of us, no longer something outside working contrary to our desires. We begin to develop a personal identity where internal and external need to become us, the core of our being. Active copers integrate these conflicting impulses into a healthy, coherent, consistent whole. Active coping contributes to healthy growth and adaptation over the course of our lives by optimizing how we respond to specific problems and by fostering continuing psychological richness self-confidence, and resourcefulness. Success and even failure, if integrated into the personality, creates a base of experience on which future coping is built. Active copers, like Grant, are not free of all personality flaws, but they face internal obstacles with the same courage and forward momentum that they face external challenges. Can you give us an example Sure. Um, an example of facing an internal obstacle. Uh, take Tim. Tim was a founder and CEO of a company providing management systems for oncology specialists. The morning I met him, he and his team had just completed a new public offering. His board has, had urged him to take this action to help finance the continued growth of the company and was very supportive of Tim for having taken it. Tim's anxiety was palpable. On this day, he told me he felt even more insecure than he had when he first took the company public. And he spontaneously traced his anxieties back to tensions he picked up as a child from his parent-strained relationship. Hmm. Tim grew up in the rural heartland. His father was a dreamer who didn't act on his entrepreneurial instincts and ambitions. His mother was cautious and feared that her husband's dreams would destroy the family's economic security. Their marriage was tense. Tim's mother inhibited his father, who complied with her wish that he stick to a safe position, which offered limited opportunities for advancement and personal growth. But Tim's father told him, you can do whatever you want, son. He didn't do, however, what he wanted. He gave in to his wife, held himself back, 
and was steadily but unhappily employed. So Tim internalized two... Pardon me? I said it's really interesting. <laughs> so he, this is the roots of his internal obstacle. There's two different messages that he internalized about achievement from his mother and his father. His mother was frightened by ambition. His father was a frustrated dreamer. But his father transferred his ambitions onto his son, who was clearly susceptible. Tim was energetic, determined, and intellectually brilliant. He believed that he could achieve whatever he set out to do, but he also believed that if he pursued his ambition, his mother's fears would come true and that success would be followed by economic ruin. To deal with the conflicting messages he got from his parents, Tim downplayed his ambition while secretly dreaming of ways to achieve. When he left home for college, he had a dilemma. Should he strive to achieve or should he hold himself back? If he held back, he'd renounce his passion and lose what could give his life meaning. If he did not, he felt unprotected. Rather than cope actively with this conflict, he partied. Mm. Tim flunked out of college his his junior year. He, He returned home to work as a truck driver. That job brought him into contact with individuals across a wide socioeconomic spectrum, and Tim saw that he could do more in life than drive a truck. He began to dream again, and this time he resolved he would achieve. He completed college, earned a master's degree in engineering, and started to apply his engineering training and talent to innovations in cancer care. Despite his anxieties, Tim made the decision to achieve. Although his achievement has been a laborious, painful internal process, he made the courage to pursue his ambitions rather than yield to his fears. Tim's conscious managing of his weakness is an example of active coping. He experienced the dilemma, confronted the trade-offs, and made a choice to follow his dreams, knowing well the anxieties he felt and probably also always would feel. And now as an adult, he can transcend momentary anxieties at least enough to make choices that give him and his company the best chances for growth. His talking to me about his anxieties rather than acting them out is an example of disability. So when you're interviewing someone as a potential uh, leader, do they often feel open enough or is your experience that they will often share this deeply about their childhood? Well, Tim was... Uh, a subject in uh, research that I conducted into the personality characteristics of successful CEOs of private equity-funded ventures, he was Mm -hmm. nominated by um, his initial investors, a a leading venture capital firm in in Silicon Valley, um, as having been outstandingly successful, witness the first IPO and now a secondary public offering at the time that I met him. So he was very successful. He was a subject in this research. He understood that it was all confidential. The information wasn't going to anyone. Um, It was just he was part of a sample of successful CEOs so that I could begin to understand the personality characteristics, what what makes these guys tick, how do they function. Um, And so he felt very safe talking Mm -hmm. to me, and he he used our time together very well. Oh, and it that's gave great. me a really good understanding, yeah, of, of how leaders grow. Yeah, and how early these behaviors get put into our psyche so that when we're adults, we may not even know what's 
creating our fears or having us act in certain ways. I know I'm still figuring some of that out about myself. So that's just so We're fascinating. All, yeah, it's it's a part of us and mm-hmm. it can facilitate our development and adaptation or it can inhibit it, but it's always a part of us. And what matters is how we cope with it. And Tim, rather than capitulate to his anxieties and and give up on his dreams, he chose to pursue them and fulfill himself. Mm, um, and that's, that's active coping. Very inspiring. And that's an example of, you know, learning learning from your failures, because he did flunk out of mm-hmm. college, um, right. and integrating that into his personality and continuing to allow himself to grow. And having had that failure probably gave him even more determination because he knew what the worst looked like in a way, or, or at least one failure looked like. So earlier you argued that when facing challenging situations, effective leaders possess structures that have the underlying flexibility to, to choose a response or even create a response that would be most effective. Can you offer an example of that? Yes. Um, active copers are masters of flexible response. Mm. And my example is Scott. Scott was somebody that I assessed for the CEO position, but not not the example that I'm going to relate to you. Um, he became CEO of a company that was facing disastrous debt, but which on an operating basis had been performing exceptionally well. It also had outstanding employees who were proud of their accomplishments. Scott decided to reorganize the company in 1991 by putting it into Chapter 11 bankruptcy long before others thought it was necessary. He acted to avoid further deterioration of the company's debt-related financial position, even though, at the time, the business community viewed any decision to take a company into bankruptcy with disdain. Employees were shocked and dismayed. Scott's decision allowed him to restructure the company within the year, repay all the creditors in full, and initiate a new product growth program. It led to a very successful outcome. And this was a publicly traded company, Fortune 500 company. Scott knew that his decision would be initially regarded as highly questionable and put his credibility at risk. He told me, in retrospect, sometimes the vision can only be seen by you, yet you have to have the courage to proceed with it despite how it's read. This is probably the most difficult business decision I have ever made. Hmm. That's an example of an active coper who, despite the pressures of his board, his management team, and the capital markets, made an effective decision and acted on it. Active copers are usually effective, but they're not always successful. In this case, Scott was both, demonstrating the flexibility and autonomy that active coping affords in response to challenging situations. Well, so if active coaching is a structural psychological characteristic, then it's an attribute of the personality as a whole, and merely looking at surface behaviors may be misleading. What appears to be active coping on the surface may not hold up under stress, as you you gave the example of George McClellan, and I can think of a variety of structural configurations, but people may be active copers on all levels or passive copers on all levels or active copers on one level but passive on another, right. um, or, in, or it could be situational. What's an example of a person who's active on the surface, but maybe underlying 
have an underlying structural basis of passivity. Yeah, who, who comes to mind is, is Ernest Hemingway. I was walking back from the grocery this morning, and there's a a, a store a latte bar that is dedicated to Ernest Hemingway because he's from mm. Illinois. Um, and he's an example of a, a man with an underlying structural basis of passivity that emerged in later life. His history shows how unconscious passivity can manifest itself as a person ages and defenses against that passivity weaken. So what's that history? Ernest's mother had six children with her husband, whom she regarded as inadequate, both sexually and as a provider. Her husband did the cooking at home. His mother saw Ernest as a child most like her and treated her him like her twin. She also treated her eldest child, Ernest's sister, as if she and Ernest were of the same gender. At times, she dressed them as little girls, at other times, as, as boys. Ernest and his sister, parenthetically, committed suicide, as their father also ultimately would. Mm. Outside this home, Ernest's father was a respected doctor and an accomplished hunter and fisherman, skills that he passed on to his son. Ernest learned from his childhood that his masculinity was constantly in jeopardy within the home, but outside the home, beyond the family, it could be preserved and even enhanced by acts of courage, contests with nature, and competition with other men. Ernest left home as soon as he could. In 1918, before he finished high school, he enlisted with the World War II ambulance drivers. He was seriously wounded by mortar fire in July of 1918 and forced to return home. He completed high school and in 1921 married the first of four wives. That marriage and the couple's subsequent move to Paris, where he worked as a war correspondent, kept him at a safe psychological distance from his mother. His third wife, also a foreign war correspondent, saw through the machismo image for which Ernest had become famous shortly after their honeymoon. She scoffed at him and ultimately rejected him, a painful insult to Ernest's manliness. As he aged, having suffered multiple severe injuries throughout his adulthood, he had problems continuing to project a masculine image. His literary friends began dying. He became increasingly depressed. During this period, he suffered from headaches, weight problems, diabetes, and high blood pressure, much of which resulted from his many previous accidents and years of heavy drinking. It seems like such a sad story. Um, We just have a minute before the break, or 30 seconds. So, um, yeah, I'd love to know what you think of that. With the onset of aging, it became impossible for him to hide from his feminine identification. Um, He drank so much that it interfered with his thinking, He developed paranoia and the depression that ultimately led to a suicide. He's a clear example of a man with underlying passivity that's systemic, not episodic. That's fascinating. It really makes the point of people and how they act on the surface, but what um, those underlying 
tendencies are, and especially tying it to his childhood, that's just so interesting. And, and it seems like it would really reflect his ability as a leader um, when called into that. So I, I just to remind everyone, my guest today is Leslie Pratch. You can read more about her at pratchco.com. And we'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. When money and tech come together, it can make for a harmonious or detrimental relationship. On Media and Your Money, host Jason Steele will show you how streaming media can work for you to help you accomplish your financial goals, both short-term and long-term. Do you have a plan for investment opportunities? How is college planning going for your kids? Is your retirement strategy working for you? Listen for Media and Your Money, Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. How is your plan going? Could you use a little help on your path to success? Why not step up and play big? Join host Chris Ruisi for a show that will help you identify the possibilities that await you. Too many people succumb to just being average when they could be exceeding average without too much more effort. It's time for you to become exceptional. Raise the bar to your success. Basically, it's time for you to step up and play big. Join Chris Ruisi every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be? Or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here with Leslie Pratch, and I want to just remind you that her book is coming out. It's available for pre-order on Amazon called Looks Good on Paper, and we're talking about active coping and how we can predict leadership based on someone's ability as an active coper. And just before the break, we were talking about Nurse Hemingway and how his uh, active coping was successful, but he had I guess it would be his passive coping or his underlying abilities to cope uh, based on his early childhood and, and buried natural tendencies created problems for him later in life. So, um, so how would you, what would you say about people who are active copers but are occasionally inconsistent in their functioning? How do you account for these inconsistencies? That's a good question. The, the reason um, I brought up Hemingway was you'd asked about um, structural configurations and um, 
as someone who may have been active on the surface but passive on the deeper levels. And Hemingway, I thought, was a good example of someone with an underlying systemic base of passivity that emerged later in life when his defenses against um, threatening feminine identifications no longer held up. So he didn't have a strategy for coping with those identifications that he could maintain as he aged. His defense was this masculine facade, um, and what precipitated his downhill trajectory was a painful rejection by his third wife. Oh, okay. So that's, um, that's different. A structural configuration like that is different from someone who's um, characteristically an active coper but is occasionally inconsistent in functioning. And I, I think of those inconsistencies in terms of holes in otherwise robust personalities. I've never heard or read a formal definition of the term coping hole, but I think the concept is necessary to account for breakdowns or inconsistencies in a person's functioning, occasional breakdowns. Sometimes these inconsistencies can result from unusual external circumstances, such as a debilitating illness or a significant personal loss, but more often they stem from internal weaknesses. So an example would be Sam, who was extremely successful in his career as an executive in the semiconductor industry. At age 50, he was brought into a venture capital firm as a partner. Everything he said about his career suggested he was a straight shooter, but my client had done very poor due diligence. I did not assess him. Once he joined the firm, his partners noticed that he told brazen lies. For example, when he entertained the firm's limited partners, he lied about the size of his boat and his ownership of a jet. His wife confirmed that his lying about the size of his possessions was typical of him. His partners stopped taking him on golf outings with clients because he'd do things like move his ball when he thought that others weren't watching or kick it when it was behind a tree. He didn't count some of his strokes. In improving his lie, he lied about his golf score. Sam's lying seemed to make everyone but Sam uncomfortable. It compromised his record of actually making fairly good investment decisions. There was a sense among his partners that if he lied about his golf game, he'd lie about more important matters. They didn't believe his reports on existing or prospective deals. They suspected him of omitting information that was material for making sound decisions. By lying about something utterly trivial, Sam managed to raise doubts about everything he said. His partners didn't want to trust him with important aspects of being a partner, and they found a way to oust him. So what would cause an ambitious and capable man like Sam to tell easily checkable lies that could sabotage his career? I think he had a hole in his coping structure. When I learned about Sam's relationship to his demanding father and his father's inability to accept Sam as less intelligent than he I could at least infer one source of his insecurities and his proclivity to lie to cover them. Sam did not deal effectively with his needs for self-esteem. In view of his father's failure to accept his abilities for what they were, despite Sam's accomplishments, he felt he was a fraud. His career success as a semiconductor executive should have disproved his underlying belief he was inferior. But when his success was put side-by-side with powerful venture capitalists, his sense of inferiority overwhelms his judgment. 
in an entirely new situation for Sam in which the success and intelligence of his new peers exceeded his own, he coped passively. Some executives might consider beefing up the size of their possessions to be an exaggeration to get ahead in business. Sam certainly did. He thought it would gain him respect, but he didn't fully think through the consequences of his lies. Instead, he wrecked his reputation in the venture community. Sam's lying indicated a hole in his self-esteem. He generally functioned well, but could not tolerate being seen in an inferior light and needed to protect that sore point. He coped actively when he felt secure or in situations that did not tap into his self-esteem or sense of masculinity, but he lied to maintain inner security when his adequacy seemed threatened, particularly, it seemed, in competitive situations. You know, I just want to state I had a partner, a business partner years ago who also lied, and when I sort of finally figured it out and she admitted it and then sort of professed to stop, I realized she wasn't able to, that it was just so automatic. And I'm thinking that was probably true with Sam, especially if he started at a very young age. So that's really interesting and sad that someone would be able to ruin their career because of, even though they probably were capable in so many ways. Um, Do you have any other examples of holes? Yeah, so um, so he had a hole in in his superego, right? Um, right. He it was there was just it just stopped working. But another example would be uh, Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. Churchill was a great leader of a nation in World War II, and generally he was a successful politician. His coping hole was the black dog of depression, in his words, that he struggled against most of his life. But unlike Hemingway, Churchill was able to pull himself out of it. A significant factor in his depressive episodes was his profound admiration for his father that was not reciprocated. Mm. The hole in his coping might be traced back to unreciprocated admiration from an idealized, admired father. Boy, so a lot of these trace back to just early childhood So you gave Hemingway as an example to explain a structural configuration of overt activity but covert passivity. How do holes differ from structural configurations? Well, structural configurations are more systemic and diffuse throughout the personality system and when manifest affect general functioning. Holes are certain sore spots and can occur on any level of functioning. So a person may be an active coper characteristically, but under prolonged stress or in some types of situations may experience anxieties or depressive reactions, reacting in, in, in maladaptive ways like Sam. Or take Sherlock Holmes, use of cocaine or Freud's fainting spells or Clinton's fast food and extracurricular sexual activities. <laughs> Holes are imperfections in an otherwise sturdy stru- structure. Churchill struggled with depression, but otherwise was extremely successful. Hemingway's behavior seemed more structurally determined. (laughs) It's also possible that that holes and structural configurations can interact, such that when the passive side of the personality manifests, it manifests first where holes already exist. 
In the case of a man like Hemingway, rejection by a wife can activate his repressed, weak, conflicted side, setting off a downhill trajectory. The possibility of an underlying structural basis of passivity that could emerge under stress or of coping holes that could impair an executive's judgment is one of the reasons why I advocate hiring for senior leadership positions, executives who demonstrate active coping across all levels of personality, and we discussed this in April 18th, conscious, semi-conscious, and unconscious, and also identifying potential holes in their coping. When executives possess all three levels of active coping without holes, they have the greatest probability of successfully mastering whatever stressful circumstances life throws at them, whether it's leaving a company with crippling debt like Sam or an internal stressor like retirement. If they have holes, their employers can be made aware of them and erect safeguards against their potential expression under situations that might trigger them. So that's really interesting, and I can already identify one of my holes. Was <laughs> when I get stressed, I I want to eat potato chips or something, um, you know. But I think um, I've done I've spent years doing personal growth work, so I I think I've identified a lot of them. And I'm curious, do you ever recommend? So so let's say you interview an ex, a potential ex, uh, leader for a venture capital company, and you can see that there is some coping hole. But you could do you ever suggest that they have such great potential and perhaps that they could, I don't know if the word is heal, but learn a different way around it, uh, maybe through therapy or, or coaching or something where they could actually be successful as a leader? Yeah, even um, a recent example is a guy I'm coaching now. He's a CEO. He sold, he founded a company and grew it and sold it, a big chunk of it, to a private equity firm um, who is continuing to grow it. But the private equity firm contacted me because they were having difficulties working with him. And I assessed him, and the idea in my assessing him all along was to start coaching him um, because they understood that the issues were bigger than they could cope with. And he, they need him. He's really talented in certain aspects of leading the company. He's necessary. He's indispensable. But many aspects of being a CEO are not within his purview and probably never will be. So that's, you know, I've, I've let his investors know what he does well and what he probably can't be relied on to perform. And they're hiring, uh, they're hiring someone to effectively lead the company as CEO. But this guy will stay in as the, as the face of the company and continue to build the brand, which is his particular strength. And another example might be, you know, two really strong candidates both active copers, but one is a really hard-charging guy who is going to turn a company around, and another is a more nurturing, growth-oriented leader. So that they're they're two active copers, but you know, and I, I like them both and would advocate for both of them in the right situation. But if the situation requires a turnaround CEO, then somebody with that kind of personality is someone I would recommend. So, could if someone has. Go ahead. If someone has a hole, I make 
my clients aware of the situations that could trigger that hole so that they can erect safeguards against the expression of that hole because the executive is not going to be able to identify it or do anything about it because it's a hole. There's a, a vacuum of, of insight and functioning in that area. And yes, those yeah. holes can, they can, just as Tim did on his own, um, he, he was able to master his anxiety about about achievement, um, people can learn to transcend those stressors. And it's not any different from an external stressor. It's an internal one that you have to contend with. And if you have sufficient active coping, your person, the healthy parts of your personality can take over and, and grow and help you develop new strategies to deal with that, that sore spot. And that's what Tim so, did. Doesn't mean so that the it, sore spot is, is never sore again, but... They're, they're, they're adaptive strategies for dealing with it rather than maladaptive behaviors. Okay. So we have about a minute and a half left. It, it just sounds like then you can look at a candidate and tell what their active coping skills are, maybe what their holes are, and then determine whether those holes are something that through coaching could still make him a successful CEO or whether he or she, I should say, or whether maybe another position is, is better suited. Um, it's just really interesting. And so it doesn't mean that if there's a hole that someone couldn't be a CEO, it just depends on the nature of it and whether you feel like they have the skills to maybe transcend it or master it. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. And, you know, again, back to, Ulysses S. Grant, he was the right leader for that situation that nearly destroyed the union. Um, (laughs) So he was sort of the CEO of the war. (laughs) Right, right. And maybe with modern methods of warfare, his his personality, his coping style wouldn't have been effective, but it was the right one for that situation. Mm, That's fascinating. Well, it looks like we're about out of time. Leslie, thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, and I look, thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> oh, and I look forward to our upcoming shows where we dig deeper into these subjects. So next week, my guest will be Michael Carroll. He's thought leader, executive coach, and author of the critically acclaimed books, Awake at Work, The Mindful Leader, and Fearless at Work. And we'll be discussing Buddhism and modern capitalism, so you won't want to miss this. For a full description of this show and access to all past shows, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 